0: they can't go on Hi folks, I'm Alan Ward This is Cutting Through The Matrix On the 29th of January 2013 For newcomers I always suggest you Make good use of the website CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com And you'll find lots of uh, audios For free download Where I go through the history Of the system you're born into And it truly is a system A very a very intricate system that uh, was developed a long time ago, a long-term plan, you might say, a goal, like many goals, actually, but part of it was to bring in a, a world community or a world government under one uh, authority. And, of course, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, uh, that was their project. And the name for them, too, is Council on Foreign Relations. They have branches in every country across the world. And for over the whole 20th century, they were working towards through wars and various other techniques to, to make countries amalgamate together through treaties, binding treaties. And eventually they formed the EU block and we're still going into the American block. And we have got a block now for some of the Latin American countries as well. And the Far East Pacific Rim region that's been working for a hundred years just to get all this done to bring in a world system, but not just to have hands across the sea and happy people and smiling faces, but to actually rule the world in a scientific manner. A world which they claim was already overpopulated even back then a hundred years ago. And they wanted to bring in a new type of society for the future to serve themselves, the elites better, and down the roads. And so you've been brought up, as so I say, in a scientifically controlled society. And even your reality is given to you. And I really mean that. Your, your complete reality is given to you, first by your parents, because they were indoctrinated by a scientific fashion. And uh, they pass it on to you and... The cartoons take over even children's stories because authors are, are given uh, extra cash to put in beds, uh, little um, stories about PC topics into their stories too. Then they get into school and further indoctrination and right through college, university, uh, it's, it's amplified too. It never leaves you. So you're given your opinions uh, right along the way, in fact. And once you leave and you're, you're working, you're too busy to be bothered with what's happening in the planet, what's going on. So I go through the history of all of this and organizations that work it all upon you and big foundations that have trillions of dollars at stake to make it happen. Remember, two that you're the audience that bring me to you. You can help me go by uh, buying the books and discs at cuttingthroughtheMatrix.com, and you can also donate. So remember from the US to Canada, you can still use personal checks or international postal money orders from the post office. You can send cash or use PayPal across the world, Western Union, MoneyGram and PayPal. And straight donations are seriously, seriously welcome. And as I say, it's hard for most folk once your conditioning has taken effect. To ever work out of it, it's it's quite a process, actually, for those who, through various circumstances, are forced to go through it, through their own circumstances, when they start to ask, why is everything falling apart? Why is the world the way it is? Why Uh, aren't I getting ahead? And so on. And then you start to catch on, little by little, as to what's really happening in the world. And some people get really angry, really upset. Some people describe it as like the, the death of someone. First you feel anger and depression and frustration, and you go through all these moods finding out that democracy doesn't exist. And you do. You go through all of this to realize that for well over 100 years, uh, every president and prime minister has been picked by the Council on Foreign Relations, and that's from their own historian, Professor Carl Quigley. Back with more after this break. folks were back cutting through the matrix and as I say this system is quite it's a very old system and the plan is very very old and I've mentioned before that the Royal Institute for International Affairs really was formed out of two groups one was the Baron Rothschild in London and and also Cecil Rhodes they got together and founded the Rhodes Foundation and they also planned to take over the resources of the planet And those who have studied Cecil Rhodes' history, it's quite fascinating how they fomented wars across South Africa and blamed the Boers, of course, just to get the British military involved and get them in to do the dirty work and pay all the money, of course, and so that they could take it over and grab all the diamonds and gold and so on. Quite the tactic they used. And even the BBC did a whole series on that at one time. But then this group uh, merged with the Alfred Milner group, Lord Alfred Milner, who's actually German, and, uh, and bankers too. And they got together and formed this big society of Rollinship for International Affairs. And the, again, the agenda was to be the same, taking over all the world's resources, running the world properly, and bringing in a new scientific type of society where people wouldn't get born unless they needed you uh, to fulfill a job. And they had many uh, front people working for them, they brought in eugenics into their system as well. H.G. Wells worked for them uh, as a propagandist, and uh, many, many others. That's how you you change people's opinions. It's primarily through fiction stuff that carries you off, and your your uh, firewall is down when you're watching or reading fiction. So the embedded stuff gets into your mind, and you, you think, Oh well, I guess that's possible, maybe it should be that way, etc., etc. And they had a big influence on the world. But uh, the, the, the big uh, empire, even of the Rothschilds, is something else altogether. There's an article put up tonight, it's, it's from the Haaretz paper, and it says uh, it's about Baron Rothschild, that's, that's Benjamin de Rothschild. And it's quite funny, it says he's put the four billion euro family fortune in the hands of his wife, Baroness Ariane de Rothschild. Now, you, you could scrap the four and probably put 40 or 405, uh, and a TR, they're a trillion, I think, more like the family fortune, because they really, I mean, in, in the 1800s, they owned about three quarters of the wealth of the world. So I'd imagine it's at least the same today, or maybe even more. And these guys lend to nations. That's why it's so safe for them to lend. They don't speculate in, in this kind of stuff. In fact, the Barnes, quite interesting, he talks about the speculators that brought on the crash in the U.S. and Britain and elsewhere, and how they should all be in jail. He said they were just robbers and thieves. But he himself, of course, he he doesn't speculate in these little trivial things, like get rich rich quick. He makes long-term plans, like the, the, his whole family's done. But they also have they lend to, to nations. They'll lend to whole nations, and that's far, far safer, isn't it? Because uh, when the nation goes bankrupt, then you can see them, well, well pay me somewhere or another, uh, and then the guy says, well, we've got no money left. Well, what have you got? What's your assets? You've got a military? Use it. That's, that's the kind of things they do. Anyway, i put this article up here. He doesn't mention that part of it, of course, but that's always been the way. If you wonder why France and all these other countries are involved in in starting to get their share of the plunder across the Middle East and elsewhere, it's because someone's put the heavy and the lean on them. That's why it happens. So I'll put this link up tonight for those who want to peruse it. And also this article is quite interesting too because Israel is famous for putting out false stories uh, against their potential enemies. And uh, and it says here that... um, Did Israeli government officials aggressively promote an unsubstantiated story about an explosion at an Iranian nuclear facility? And this is according to the Ali Garib at the Daily Beast. says, yes, he writes that it's an object lesson that shows just how far some press and even Israeli government officials have gone down the rabbit hole on Iran issues by propagating a story reported on a conspiracy website. Reports have been circulating for days, claiming there was such an explosion in the Iranian enrichment facility at Fordow, Ford it's called. It might have just disappeared, but Israeli officials started pushing the story in the press without citing any evidence, of course. And it says, the first, uh, Sorry, it first popped up the story three days ago in World Net Daily, written by an author. Uh, going by the pseudonym of Reza Khalili, who claims to be a former CIA spy in Iran, but Khalili is unreliable to say the least, amongst other outlandish claims peddled by Khalili, he wrote that Iran already has nuclear weapons. But that didn't stop all kinds of news media repeating Khalili's and unsubstantiated claim. The website of the Israeli paper Yedioth uh, Athro not ran a story on Saturday that began WorldNet Daily, an American news website affiliated with the right, reported Friday that a mysterious explosion had destroyed a significant portion of Iran's Fordow nuclear facility. And it says, um, this is on Sunday, the news press ran a story riddled with uh, punctuation errors that cited WorldNet Daily and Yedioth, reprinting parts of the latter story in full. And it says, another story today at the Jewish press, under a credulous headline, admitted the story might not be right in its, its, uh, in its stuff, and so on. Anyway, it shows you, and I've often wondered, because World Night Daily sometimes has amazing claims. Uh, there was one a while back where they had said about 400 uh, Iranian uh, madmen or something were, were heading to the States to cause all kinds of mayhem, stuff like that and uh, and Iraqi types and all that just all heading here to do us all in and stuff like that but it makes you wonder who's on Both sides are all on or are they on the same side I wonder sometimes and Google we all know this because we're living in a society that's getting worse and worse it's supposed to get worse and worse by the way because that's what they gave you the computer, the internet, everything else was to get you hooked on it so they could track you and everything you do know all about you what you chat about, what you think about, what your interests are. And I've mentioned before the Pentagon actually, and I've read the articles from the Pentagon, where they're virtual you and me and everybody else. And you can actually play games on them, knowing your whole personality profile, how you would react in certain situations. And they set up these, these things in a, a virtual reality and use your avatar sort of thing. So anyway... They're also at it again, of course, and they'll always get at it because, see, it's part of the world the intelligence establishment, Google. That's who set it up, NSA, it set it up in the first place, and MI6 and so on. And it says, that's why no one can touch them, really. This Google is embroiled in its biggest privacy battle yet in the UK over reportedly tracking users' online habits. There's nothing new in that. So at least 10 UK citizens began legal actions with dozens more lining up, according to media estimates of up to 10 million Britons could join in. It's accused of evading security settings on Apple's devices and Safari's web browser in order to keep tabs on people's online preferences. This is the first group claim over privacy issues that the tech giant is facing in the UK, the lawyer behind the action, Dan Tech, uh, told The Guardian. I see it's particularly concerning how Google circumvented security settings to snoop on its users. One of the things about Google is that it's so ubiquitous in our lives. And if you think that's its approach, then it's quite concerning. On top of that, there are plans in the works to launch an umbrella privacy action suit, which could potentially bring in millions of people in the UK. Google executives reportedly received a letter from the two users prior to the launch of legal proceedings and the tech giants being sued for breaches of privacy and confidence, computer misuse and trespass and breach of Data Protection Act of 1998. Claimants want Google to reveal how much data was secretly collected for how long and how the information is being used. The point in the claim is not to make money off of Google but to send a message and I a privacy campaigner working on the legal claims. Alexander uh, Hanf is his name. Well, I don't know where, if I'll go any further because, as I say, it's an essential part of intelligence, too. And that's what it's used for. Of course, it is. This is an interesting article, too. It's quite quite different. It says, Burn, burn in Africa's Afghanistan. It says, and it talks about the, the Frenchmen's miraged fighters uh, over, you know. And uh, the latest, uh, Mali and so on. Apparently it's a no-brainer. Mali holds 15.8 million people with a per capita gross domestic product of only around uh, $1,000 US dollars and average life expectancy of only 51 years. In a territory twice the size of France, per capita GDP is $35,000 and upwards. Now almost two-thirds of this territory is occupied by heavily weaponized Islamist outfits. This is what next? This is well, bomb, baby, bomb. So welcome to the latest African war, Chad-based French mirages and gazelle helicopters, plus a smatter of France-based uh, Rafales uh, or b- bombing evil Islamist jihadists in Northern Mali. Business is good. Uh, uh, French President Francois Holland spent slot past Tuesday in Abu Dhabi, uh, Clinching the sale of up to 60 Raphaels to that gulf, gulf paragon of democracy, United Arab Emirates. So, see, war is a great business for countries that are broke. And see, the, France is being leaned on by the big bankers heavily. Since the formerly wimpy Holland, now enjoying his resolute, determined, tough-guy image reconversion, has cleverly sold all this as incinerating Islamists in the savannah before they take a one-way uh, Bamaka Paris flight to bomb the Eiffel Tower French special forces have been on the ground in Mali since early 2012 The Torg leg led NMLA National Movement for the Liberation of Azawad via one of its leaders now says it's ready to help the former colonial power, building itself as more knowledgeable about the culture and the terrain uh, than future intervening forces from the CEDEAO acronym in French for the Economic Community of Western African States Salafi jihads in Mali have got a huge problem. They chose the wrong battlefield. If this was Syria, they would have been showered by now with weapons, logistical bases, a London-based observatory, hours of YouTube videos and all-out diplomatic support by the usual suspects of US, Britain, Turkey and the Gulf, Petro-Monarchies and we, Monsieur France himself. Instead, they were slammed by the United Nations Security Council faster than a collection of Marvel heroes, duly authorizing a war against them. Their West African neighbours, part of the ECOWAS regional bloc, were given a deadline late November to come up with a war plan, which is a joke for this, these blocks in Africa. This being Africa, nothing happened. And the Islamists kept advancing until a week ago Paris decided to apply some Hollandaise sauce and bomb the hell out of them, in other words. Back with more after this. Hi, folks. I'm back. We're cutting through the Matrix. Talking about Mali and what's really going on there. And it says, it all started with a military coup in March 2012, only one month before Mali would hold the presidential election, ousting then-President Amadou Tumani Tour. It says the coup plotters justifies a response to the government's incompetence in fighting the Tuaregs. The coup leader was one Captain Amadou Haya Sanogo, who happened to have been a very cozy with the Pentagon. That included his four-month infantry officer basic training course in Fort Benning, Georgia, in 2010. And here's work gets interesting. Essentially, Sanogo was also groomed by AFRICOM under a regional scheme mixing the State Department's Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Partnership Program and the Pentagon's Operation Enduring Freedom. It goes without saying that all this freedom business, Mali has been the proverbial steady ally, as in counter-terrorism partner, fitting, at least in thesis, al-Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb. Over the last few years, Washington's game has elevated flip-flopping to high art. During the second George W. Bush administration, special forces were very active side by side with the Toregs and the Algerians. During the first Obama administration, they started backing the Mali governments against the Toreg. An unsuspecting public may pore over Rupert Murdoch's papers, for instance, the Times of London, and its so-called defence correspondent will be pontificating at the will on Mali without ever taking or talking about blowback from the Libya war. Mammer Gaddafi always supported the Toreg's independence drive. Since the 1960s, the NMLA agenda has been to liberate uh, Azawad, which is North Mali, from the central government in Bamako. After the March 2012 coup, the NMLA seemed to be on top. They planted their own flag on quite a few government buildings and in April the 5th announced, announced the creation of a new independent Toreg country. The international community spurned them only for a few months later to have the NMLA, uh, for all practical purposes, marginalised even in their own region by three other Islamist groups, Ansar Ed Din, Defenders of the Faith, and the Movement for Unity and Jihad in West Africa. And the Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb. It's quite fascinating. I don't understand this because uh, you find in the readings of, of, in the writings of uh, Kissinger and other ones and Brzezinski and so on, they talked about uh, the best plans long before all of this started, right after 9-11 in fact, uh, and how to basically take down all these countries that were on the, the same list as the PNAC countries list to take down, which we've pretty well done, most of them except Iran. And they said then the best thing to do was to destroy all their infrastructure. In other words, you, you put the Stone Age. And then you put in your puppet governments. But you also get, you, you start funding all the different factions of the Muslims so that they could perpetually fight each other forever and be completely ineffective from then on. And, and that's what they've done. And it's not just there; It's also going into, into Mali and other places too. So I'll put this link up tonight for folk, folk who really care about what's actually really happening. And that's Article two is interesting, it says Israeli and Jewish aid officials are denying an Israeli TV report alleging that Ethiopian immigrant women, these are Ethiopian Jews, or they're, they're flash Jews, have been coerced into taking contraceptive shots. It's not just you know just pills, it's the shots. And they're they're controversial types of shots. The report, which aired Saturday night on Israeli education television, charged that coercive contraception is behind a 50% decline in the Ethiopian birth rate in Israel over the last decade. Ethiopian women, interviewed in a program called Vacuum and hosted by Gal Gabay, said they were coerced into receiving injections of Depo-Provera, a long-acting birth control drug both at Jewish-run health clinics in Ethiopia and after their move to Israel. Rachel Mangoli, executive director of the Wizzle chapter of Cat's Village, told the TV show that she realized something was amiss when during a full year in her Ethiopian program, just one Ethiopian baby was born. I went to the health clinic and was told that Ethiopian immigrants were given the contraception because they couldn't be relied upon to take the pills every day, Mangoli said. In the report, a woman identified as S said she was told that the Jewish aid compound in Gondar uh, Ethiopia, if you don't get the shot we won't give you a ticket to immigrate to, to Israel. She recalled didn't want to take it, they wanted me to take it but I didn't know it was a contraceptive she said she thought it was an immunization another Ethiopian interviewed for the program, Amawash Alani said, we said we would won't accept the shot, but they told us you won't immigrate to Israel, you also won't come into this clinic, you won't get help and medical treatment so we had no choice she says that's why we took the shot the American-Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, which runs the health clinics in Ethiopia for prospective immigrants to Israel, said it offers contraception amongst its array of services, but it's purely voluntary. And then it says, at no time did the JDC coerce anyone into engaging at family planning at its clinics. Those options were totally voluntary and offered to women who requested it, a JDC spokesman New York said. But then you go to today's article, Israel admits birth control program for Ethiopians, concedes immigrants were given contraceptive shots. So one day they're, they're denying it, next day they're admitting it, and they were given the contraceptive shots, and which, which likely accounts for a decline in their birth rate, well, a demand so And it says here that uh, the government official has for the first time acknowledged the practice of injecting women of Ethiopian origin with a long-acting contraceptive depot provera. And the Health Ministry Director of General Professor Ron Gamzu has instructed the four health maintenance organizations to stop the practice as a matter of course. The ministry and other state agencies had previously denied knowledge or responsibility for the practice which was first reported five years ago. Five years ago they reported it. Gamsu's letter instructed all gynecologists and the HMOs not to renew prescriptions for depo provera for women of Ethiopian origin if for any reason there's concern that they might not understand the ramifications of the treatment while they were lying to them and saying there were inoculations and immunizations. Just shows you some are more equal than others in such societies. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. I'm back, cutting through the matrix, talking about the big system we're living in. And you know, you got to really be careful with all the news because everything's got a spin on it, and everything's really given a stamp of approval before it's given to the public. But uh, there's been so many lies to do with the wars that have been ongoing since the 90s. You know, with the Gulf War, one straight on through. That, uh, you've got to really keep the facts straight and remember yourself. The only really, the only true historian is yourself. If you've got memory at all as to what happened, when and so on. And the accounts given at the time as to the accounts given later on and so on and so on. Because they keep changing stories and, and truth goes down the memory hole, of course, especially with so much of it being up on the internet these days. Once it's gone, it's gone. Anyway. I thought people will probably remember uh, that Obama issued a warning to the Syrian President Bashar al-Assad last month that the use of chemical warfare was totally unacceptable. But then out came after this leaked emails from defense contractor refers to chemical weapons saying the idea is approved by Washington. And it says a U.S. backed a plan to launch chemical weapons attack on Syria and blame it on Assad's regime. And so leaked emails have allegedly proved that the White House gave the green light to chemical weapons attack in Syria that could be blamed on Assad's regime, and in turn spur international military action in the devastated country. A report released Monday it contains email exchange between the two senior officers at British-based contractor Britam Defence, where a scheme approved by Washington is outlined, explaining that Qatar would fund rebel forces in Syria to use chemical weapons. Barack Obama made it clear to Syrian president uh, last month the U.S. would not tolerate the, uh, Syria using chemical weapons. So they're getting at the stage ready for the release of chemical weapons to blame it on the Syrians, of course. And, and uh says here, war games and so on. Anyway, I'll put this up tonight too for those who want to have a little look at it. But, I mean, this is pretty standard stuff, and it's difficult to ever find truth on what's going on. Remember they say the first casualty of, of war is truth. And that's true, because everything is propaganda. And they must always try and get the public support on, on their side, so that you'll allow them to go off and slaughter people. For whatever reason it's going to be. Although it's never the one they really tell you. Also, an article came out too about UK. It says the UK troop abuse of Iraqis is systemic. And this says, um. Nearly 200 Iraqi civilians are fighting a high court battle in London for a fully independent public inquiry into allegations that British troops committed terrifying acts of brutality following the invasion of Iraq. Two judges were told women, elderly and children were amongst the victims as soldiers went in search of individuals to detain and interrogate. A judge alleged is inquiries being sought into accusations that British interrogators were guilty of unlawful killings as well as torture in British-controlled detention facilities between 2003 and 2009. So we'll see if that goes anywhere, but I wouldn't count on it. You, know, you just don't count on it because uh, you're up against the big powers. And this article is quite interesting too. I generally don't read stuff from global research. Because I remember the, the the one who heads it all, uh, I think he's pretty well communistic in his values. They've great articles; they get very good articles, and they certainly do their homework. They've got lots of students, I think, working with them too, to read really dig Shop stuff. But I remember when uh, the head fella went off to talk to the Marxist meeting at uh at uh, in Germany a few years ago, and I I I saw the the article about it in a French a French ad where he was talking to the International Marxists uh, of the Year uh, meeting, and I guess it's a Marxist push, that's their whole spin. But anyway, some of their articles are awfully good, and here's one here, and it talks about um, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy and so on, and um, Mr. Holland. The military adventures of Nicolas Sarkozy and François Hollande in Afghanistan, Ivory Coast, Libya, Syria, and now in Mali, are hotly discussed in the French army. This might make more sense in filling the missing pieces and opposition they face is at a critical point. And here are some examples. 2008, when Nicolas Sarkozy had just changed the mission of the French soldiers in Afghanistan to become supplementary forces of the U.S. occupation, the Chief of Staff of the Army, General Bruno CUSH. Uh, refused to send in Leclerc's tanks. The crisis was so profound that President Sarkozy took advantage of the first opportunity to force General Couch to resign. In 2011, it was Admiral Pierre-Francois Forissier's turn. The chief of naval staff had publicly expressed his doubts about the operation in Libya, which, according to him, took the French forces away from their primary mission of defending their homeland. In 2012, General Jean Fleury, former Chief of Staff of the Air Force, was even more explicit in saying that France has neither the, the vocation nor the means to attack Syria. Over the past five years, the senior officers, most often very observant Catholics, have become convinced that the power of the French army has been diverted by President Sarkozy and Holland to serve private or foreign interests, U.S. and Israeli. I think it's also to do with what I mentioned at the beginning, as when big, big bankers can demand to countries that are broke, well, you've got assets, use your military says this is confirmed by the very organization of recent external operations, since 2010, most of them have escaped the command of Chief of Defense Staff Admiral Edward Gillard to crew to the command of General Benedict Puga from the LEC. This paratrooper, a specialist of special operations and intelligence, embodies both dependence on Israel and the revival of colonialism. It was he who oversaw in Egypt the construction of the steel wall to complete the closure of the Gaza Strip, turning it into a giant ghetto. We know that Nicolas Sarkozy did not enjoy contact with the military. François Hollande, on his part, flees their company. Thus, when he went to Lebanon to urge President Michel Suleiman to support the secret war in Syria on November the 4th, he did not see fit to, to greet the French contingent of the UNIFIL. This affront is not attributable to disdain, but to Holland's fear of coming into contact with them. He's afraid of his own military. The crisis of confidence has reached a point where the security service of Lycia fears a military attempt on the life of the President of the Republic. Uh, Thus, January 9th, the President's address to the French armed forces of the 12th Regiment, Curaciers, Darlene's base, the LEC required the neutralization of weapons. The firing pins of assault rifles and machine guns were removed, and pistols were also incapacitated. Ammunition was confiscated and stored in sealed bags. Such a measure had not been taken since the Algerian crisis 60 years prior. So going to see a parade, uh, they they couldn't have any live ammo or workable firearms on site. Prince Francois Holland said, The military community is a family with active units and reserves. He says, I know the stability, solidarity, and I also appreciate the sense of discipline, cohesion, and even of discretion. The behavior of his security services belied his words. The president is afraid of his armed forces. He distrusts his soldiers because he knows he cannot justify the missions he assigns to them. This crisis will not fail to deepen if the president continues his commitment to extending covert operations to Algeria. Moreover, since the suspension of conscription and the professionalization of the armed forces, many recruits are drawn from Muslim families from Algeria. They not fail to react emotionally to the rampant recolonization of their parents' homeland. So this was quite a good little article. And it shows you too, but who's put the lien on them? Who's put the lien on them to get the cash in, you know? Because, as I say... Um, There's no doubt about it, France is in a bad way, and I'll I'll read an article later about how bad they are (laughs) at the moment. Also tonight, too, it's an interesting little website uh, to do with... You know that countries are regarded as corporations. They're all down in some book somewhere as uh, corporations. And this one says, Are corporations masquerading as government in Australia and worldwide? And it's interesting to see where they're all listed. It says, Would you be surprised to find a company with the same name as your country registered with the Security and Exchange Commission in Washington, D.C.? It says, well, guess what? Amongst those listed to corporate entities by the United States SEC are Israel, Turkey, Italy, Hungary, Sweden, Finland, Argentina, Colombia, Brazil, the Philippines, South Korea, Japan, Jamaica, South Africa, Canada, Australia... And my personal favorite, he says, Her Majesty the Queen, in right of the province of Alberta, as represented by Alberta Investment Management Corporations. So I'll put this article up, it's quite interesting, because it does go into the, the legalities of what you think you're, you are, and what your country is, and what the corporate world's how do they see it themselves. That's quite interesting. And another one I'll put up tonight too, is about the constitution. And it was from a Georgetown law professor, Louise Michael Seidman, who says, I've got a simple idea. Let's give up on the Constitution. I know it sounds radical, but it's really not constitutional disobedience. is as American as apple pie. For example, most of our greatest presidents, Jefferson, Lincoln, Wilson, and both Roosevelt's, had doubts about the Constitution, and may have, many of them disobeyed it when it got in their way. To be clear, I don't think we should give up everything in the Constitution. It says it's given, it's given many important and inspiring provisions, but we should obey them because they're important and uh, inspiring, not because a bunch of people who are now long dead favoured them two centuries ago. So it's the same old stuff they've been teaching in university to do away with it altogether. So, and out with it all will go, your uh, rights and freedoms, and which is going a, a lot, it's all going anyway, isn't it? I mean, for goodness sake, let's be honest here. It's all been snatched away over, over the, the years. Also, this article here, France is totally bankrupt, says a jobs minister, as concerns grow over Holland's tax and spend policies. It says, his name is Michael Sapin, and he says, There is a state, but it's a totally bankrupt state. Unemployment living costs have spiralled since party came into power. President's trying to revive the economy through cutting spending by 51 billion and Finance Minister Pierre Moscovici said Mr. Sapin's comments were inappropriate and tried to blame Nicolas Sarkozy's government. But the fact is they're broke and they're getting leaned on by, you know, big guys to use their military and so on to get cash in and oil and gold and diamonds and everything else to get their hands on. They pay it off. That's what you do. That's what governments are also used for. Bankers often see them, governments, as just an extension of their own business. I hope you understand that. That's really the way it is. So this Francis socialist government was involved in a vast damage limitation exercise today, after the senior minister admitted that the country was totally bankrupt. And colleagues of Michael Sapin, Secretary of State for Employment, insisted that he was merely highlighting the faults of the last Conservative administration after the Minister said the government's tax and spend policy is just not working. And he says, just half a year since his party came to power. Mr. Sapin yesterday told radio listeners, there is a state that's a totally bankrupt state. That is why we had to put a deficit reduction plan in place and nothing should make us turn away from that objective while the admission was unlikely to have been intentional it highlighted huge concern at present Francois Holland's handling of the economy so I'll put this link up tonight too for those who really care you know I mentioned two before, but it's interesting that Davis wants $14 trillion of your cash money to green the economy. I'll put that one up again because it's quite interesting. And also, Cuba's Raul uh, Castro assumes the presidency of the bloc of Latin American and Caribbean countries. Big moves going on, eh? Big moves. And it says... um, Cuban President Raul Castro assumed the presidency of the Community of Latin American Caribbean States on Monday in a demonstration of regional unity against the U.S.'s efforts to isolate the communist government through a 50-year-old economic embargo. Castro was warmly welcomed by his colleagues as he spoke Monday at the closing ceremony of the CELAC uh, Summit in Santiago, taking over the rotating presidency from Chile. He described what he called a common vision for Latin America and the Caribbean homeland, saying the SILAC joins the 33 independent nations of our Americas to build a space for national sovereignty and encourage integration. I wonder if it's going to start all the old wars off again with the U.S. School of Americas and all, all that stuff that went on for years before. This is one more sign that Latin America wants Cuba to fully integrate the re- to regional uh, bodies, even though Cuba, unlike the rest of Latin America, has a one-party state, said Philip Peters, Cuba analyst and vice president of the Lexington Institute think tank outside Washington. Many of the leaders seeking, uh, speaking in San Diego described SILAC as counterweights to the economic and political power of the United States, which for decades froze Cuba out of the Organization of American States and other regional groupings. So there's Cuba at the head of it now. And we'll have to see what uh the plans are for that. And also I've mentioned before how the the whole carbon tax uh scam, they're claiming it's crashing right now. They want money to, your money to inject into to keep it going, I'll put that link up again too. That's the real reason for it. They want your cash to get it really, really going. It's an absolute necessity for the big world powers to, to uh, the guys who run the world that is to get this carbon con going. to just to change all of our lives from birth to death, how we behave, what we eat, what we don't eat, all that kind of stuff, where we live, how we live. Uh, that's what it's about too. So I'll put that up as well. And I hope you will realize that's what it's really all about. It's not just cash. But it's a great side economy for the guys who get lots of money for nothing. Lots of money for nothing. Fantastic, eh? And also, in Britain... Another country that's had to get involved in more wars because they get getting leaned on too by the big bankers. Their big stores, the big chain stores are all collapsing. It says, uh, an HMV store in Britain's retailers are dropping like flies with music giant HMV, photography specialists, Jessops and video rental chains, blockbusters all forced into administration as a receivership in the last few days. And there's doubtless more pain in the way. He revealed three of the most likely contenders for closure. So they've got... Argos for the next one, mother care, there's another one. Dixon's Rental, Currys and PC World, and then others listed two that they think will all be next. They're all falling one after another, like dominoes. So they get more wars going, you see, and plunder more assets. You know, get more assets and from other countries, and they'll use their military to do it, of course. This article two is very, very good. It says, if assault weapons are bad, why does the Homeland Security want to buy 7,000 of them for personal defense? Understand terminology. If they want, if you want, understand how it's used. I mean, it's a science. And propaganda. And, uh, if they want to get them off of you, they call them assault weapons. If when they ordered them themselves, they call them personal defense weapons. Sounds a bit different, a totally different personal defense weapon. In fact, if folk, if folk in America says well they're wanting to hear personal defence weapons away, it would sound like it's a nasty thing to do. So you should maybe stop calling them assault weapons soon. Eh? But it says here the Department of Homeland Security is seeking to acquire seven thousand five point five six by millimeter mm NATO personal d- defence weapons, <laughs> also known as assault weapons, when owned by civilians. The solicitation, originally posted in June 7, 2012, comes to light as the BAM administration is calling for a ban on semi-automatic rifles in high-capacity magazines. Second, a General Service Administration request for proposal Steve McGough, of Radio Voice Online, reports that DHS is asking for the 7,000 select fire firearms because they're suitable for personal defense use in close quarters. The term select fire means the weapon can be both semi-automatic and fully automatic. That's the difference too, uh, from the ones they sell to civilians. There you can't get fully automatic. And, and it goes on about, it <laughs> keeps calling them personal defense weapons. Uh, so you're going to start using the same term, personal defense weapons, folks. Back with more after this break. Hi, folks. We're back, cutting through the Matrix there's all these links, remember, I'll put up tonight at com after the broadcast and, and, um, talking about the assault, so-called assault rifles or personal defense weapons, uh, which is far better, you know, sounds better because if you take your personal defense away from you, that's not a nice thing, is it? But that's how they word it themselves. It depends who's got them. And there's a lot of links on this website, too, from the government ones, too, for their requests for these new uh, rifles and so on. And so on and so on. And the different press releases that came out from the, the different uh, p- people involved in the legislation as well. So will put that up tonight. Also, interesting, too, in so-called up-and-coming economies, how can they still call China an up-and-coming economy? Like I said, it's a, still a third world, you know what I'm saying? Everything's made in China for the whole planet now. And we're still actually building hospitals and all that through the different trade agreements we gave them. So anyway, it says that Beijing, how does one eat a banana gracefully with a knife and fork slicing into thin slurers? Of course, it's all about finishing schools uh, for uh, Beijing's Olympics and so on, different things as well. But it, uh, um, it's also to do with the, the massive uh, service industry complete service industry, if you get my drift, for folk going over to China, foreigners going over. And how that's most folk nowadays are coming from China and so-called up-and-coming countries, not from the old countries that are all falling apart, like Britain and elsewhere. And they go to learn it in Switzerland, and they do a six-week course there and so on. A six-week course to, to, for a finishing school costs around $20,000 there. So it's, they're now bringing a uh, finishing school and all their techniques back to China, and uh, it's going to really take off big time. So I'll put that up tonight, too, to show you who's coming up the world, who's going down, and so on. And then British troops, again, because they're getting leaned on, have to get involved in Mali. They're sending two to 300 so-called personnel to advise. i always start with advisors. That's how Vietnam started to the advisors. But send troops in, and they bring more troops in, more troops in, and more troops Mind you, too, they've got a lot of, lot of land to plunder yet, yeah, and a lot of minerals and oil gold and stuff that's never been tapped before. So they've got to keep plundering to keep the bankers happy, because we're all broke, partly. And then there's an interesting article here, too, from New York Times. It says, "Ought to be Jewish in China. And it says, it's surprising that China, they know what being a Jew means. And so, ah, so clever, the Chinese person will see with a nudge. So good with money. The Chinese and the Jews, we have so much in common, it says here. And they give their visits to the Shabad community. The Shabad community, center of the high holidays days and Passover meal shared in Jewish friends' courtyards, homes. Little differentiates me from the thousands of other Europeans living in China's capital. The interesting part is it goes into... Um, how old Judaism has been in China, that there have been different communities in the past. Other ones have blended into China's stream uh, uh, over the, over many years. But there's more business people over there and Jewish communities as well. It also goes into the fact that during World War II, tens of thousands of Jews fleeing Nazi Germany were welcomed in China. And it's true, I thought about the Fugu Plan, a good book to read written by a Japanese rabbi, and he talks about how um, they set up Shanghai uh, under agreement with the big bankers in America and um, uh, to, to make it a free zone for Jews, for the Japanese would, wouldn't touch them at all. And they're quite safe there. The, the, the Japanese went around killing the Chinese folk, but they left all these refugees quite safe. Vidal Sassoon was in charge of it. He had the biggest um, casino uh, house in the whole of Shanghai before that all happened. But he was in, in touch with the bankers back in the U.S. to make this deal because they were still lending money to Japan. Remember that they spent to set up the whole military industrial complex for Japan for World War II. From Hamish myself and from Ontario, Canada, it's good night, to be your God or your gods go with you.